Attention, everyone. This is an emergency broadcast. The unpleasant noise you are about to hear coming from your radio is not a mistake. Please do not turn off your radio, but turn up the volume on your receiver as high as it can go. So that you can make the sound we broadcast as possible. Welcome to the Kaiju Cast, the spookiest Kaiju podcast, 666% dedicated to Godzilla and all of his rubber suited fiends. My name is Creepy Kyle, and this is Ethereal Episode 155, and the first fright inducing installment for October 2015. We've been without a yokai episode for so long, I figured it was time to resurrect that theme and open a portal to the land of the dead so the ghosts and goblins can help celebrate October with all that is awful. For this spook show, we have an inconceivable interview with Zach Davison, an author that loves Japanese things that go bump in the night. So don't forget that this month's Daikaiju discussion is for the 2005 film... The Great Yokai War by Takashi Miike. <clears throat> and you'll need to have that sent in by October 23rd to be included in the episode. Also, I kind of forgot that while that movie has a child in the lead role, there actually might be some disturbing imagery for viewers with sensitive sensibilities. So if you'll allow me to do my best William Castle impersonation, which is not good. I'm just letting you know right now. We're going to offer a full money-back guarantee for anyone who might be too frightened to watch the Great Yokai War. Just head over to the Coward's Corner to get your refund. Oh, that's right. This is a completely free podcast. (laughs) You know, you can't get money back. Anyway, now it's time to play a terrifying tune and start the interview. Scream at you later, listeners. Jamata. Oh, <laughs> 
Zach Davison, award-winning author, translator, and scholar of Japanese folklore, uh, which I totally swiped from your bio page, of course. Please welcome him to the podcast, everybody. Thank you. I, I do my imitation of a Godzilla roar, but we all know that that's copyrighted, and I don't want to get you in trouble. So. <laughs> well, I don't make any money off the show, so it's uh, like, go I for think it. That's one of the funniest things in the... Cause, Correct me if I'm wrong, but the old 60s, or not 60s, when was that, 70s Godzilla cartoon where they licensed Godzilla but didn't license the roar because you have to buy those separately? Yeah, the Hanna-Barbera one, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Yes, such a crazy, crazy show. Uh, Well, Zach, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm sorry we didn't really get to connect too much at Rose City Comic Con. Oh, that's okay. It was good to at least just meet you, have Definitely, a name to go with absolutely. the voice, or a face to go with the voice. It's been quite some time since we've had a yokai-specific episode, and I could not have planned it any better that you are the kickoff episode of October, and we're launching another yokai extravaganza here. Um, tell me a little bit, how how did you get involved with with learning about yokai? So I've always I've always been a fan of the supernatural. I mean, that's just one of those things where I didn't really know how to explain it other than just I was born with it. I was born curious and interested in all of this sort of like weird stuff. Like as a kid, I used to watch this TV show called In Search Of, which you really have to be, I think, in your 40s and above to appreciate. But, you know, it was hosted by Leonard Nimoy, by Mr. Spock. And, you know, they you know, in the pre-internet, pre-history channel era, they they basically explored all of the weird parts of these worlds and the unexplained mysteries. And I was really into that. And I really enjoyed that. And like living in the Pacific Northwest, I got interested in Bigfoot. You know, I used to have a subscription to this magazine called 40 and Times. And I was just, I was really into all the sort of like weird magic of the world. And I always have been. I mean, that's been a constant thread throughout my life. Japan-specific folklore actually entered my life in a strange way in that um, because I was, as a kid, I was so interested in this. My mother bought me this series of books called The Enchanted World from Time Life. And it was this sort of encyclopedia of world folklore. And each book focused on a specific topic. So you had like elves, dwarves, dragons. And one of the books was ghosts. And inside the ghost book, uh, they had this story that was called A Wife's Revenge. And it was, um, it was the story of Owiwa from Yotsuya Kaidan. And that was really my first experience with a specifically Japanese ghost. And the image of it just imprinted itself on my head as a child. I mean, I'd never seen anything like that because it was just the full-fledged kabuki ghost with like with the dripping face and the blue, um, the blue skin and the big dark heavy eyes and all awesome. of that. Yeah. All that modeling that goes along with it. And it just didn't look anything like a, a ghost that I'd ever experienced. And I was just like, I, I just found it fascinating. And, you know, that, you know, like I didn't dive that much deeply into Japanese folklore beyond that, other than just I've always, you know, maintained this sort of general interest in it, you know. And, but I was interested in in Japanese culture as well. And like in, you know, junior high, I tried to study Japanese. But at the time, Japanese was in Japan was not nearly as popular as it is now. So we actually had, you know, like two people sign up for the class and it got canceled. Um you know, and this was way before any of the anime manga wave that hit, but it's just, you know, I've always been carried through being interested in it. Um, when I was older, uh, and I really wanted to go out and live in another country for a while, I found out about this thing called the JET program. And the JET program basically takes college graduates and gives them a one year working visa that they can go live in Japan and work, live and work in Japan. And I thought that that sounded like 
a pretty cool adventure. So I applied for and got accepted in the jet program. And I went over there initially to go over for one year. Um, I ended up staying seven. But once I hit Japan, I was just flabbergasted because Japan is, I always call it the most haunted country on earth. If you've ever been there, they have a just unashamed love affair with monsters. I mean, they are just everywhere. And I saw all of this crazy stuff that looks so cool. And I just didn't know what any of it was. And that just hooked me entirely. And I just was like, I have to learn what is going on here. I have to know what all this crazy stuff is. And I just dove into studying it. Um, and when I eventually started working on my master's degree over in Japan, I um, went to school over in Hiroshima. And my advisor was kind enough to allow me to do my thesis on yurei. So I did my full master's thesis, which was my really deep exploration of ghosts, in particular Japanese ghosts. That is fantastic. Now, is that what what uh, basically your book has turned has been turned into? That is not yeah, what you'd say there. But yeah, essentially my master's thesis turned into a book. I mean, it's not my because master's thesis are really boring and dry and academic, and I didn't want to write that because I figure there's really enough boring, dry academic books in the world. But what I wanted to find was that compromise between fun to read and still with solid information mm-hmm. and. I don't know, no one's really ever noticed this, but I actually, I took as my model Carl Sagan's Cosmos, because that was something that I always really loved as a kid. And I loved the way that he went into the stories behind the people, rather than just sort of listing facts. Like, he would choose a main character for the story, and so you'd learn, like, the life of Isaac Newton and from a boy and everything. And I sort of borrowed that model, and so each chapter has a, a main character that I sort of explore while telling the story of Yure. Very, very cool, man. So, you uh, mentioned in the introduction uh obviously that there are a lot of yurei in cinema in japan and and of course they're very different from what we know here in the states uh what are some of your favorite representations of yurei or actually before we go into that you should probably explain a little bit more about what a yurei is and oh. why why it's distinctly different from what we know in the in the west as a, as a ghost yeah absolutely so I mean, that's part of the introduction of my book as well is the whole concept of naming yurei because I think it is something distinct. You know, um, it's like a lot of folkloric monsters, like like the example I use in my book is Leprechaun, um, or you can say that of the Banshee or a lot of these different Celtic monsters that have entered English because they were a, they had their own distinct identity, right? You could say, oh, this is an Irish fairy, but that doesn't really tell you as much as saying, oh, this is a Leprechaun or this is a Banshee or something like that. You know, they are distinct folk folkloric creatures and they have their own distinct appearance their own identity and to me yure fall into that category you know they they sort of deserve their own name rather than just being called japanese ghosts because they're they're very very different from western ghosts i think a lot of that has to do with um the motivation the sort of why do yure exist and there's a lot of that is wrapped up in this religion of that particular culture of japan being a shinto buddhist culture has different motivations for its monsters and for its ghosts in particular than a judeo-christian based society does um the really specific one to that's influenced by both buddhism and shinto is the concept of desire as something that that is binds you to earth right i'm in Buddhism, the ultimate goal is to be without want. You know, he who wants nothing, who has managed to completely disassociate and detach himself is how you, um, how you achieve nirvana by lack of desire. Um, and so a yure is, comes into existence because it wants something on its deathbed. At the very second of its death, the yure dies wanting something. And the only way to get rid of a yure, 
well, there's there's two. One's more complicated. Um, it involves a lot of ritual. But the easiest way is to give the yurei what it wants. And as soon as you give the yurei what it wants, it disappears. It no longer has the ability to maintain hold. So it's not like like a lot of Western ghosts, you hear them described as like a looped tape. Um, or like an after effect or something or, or people who don't know that they're dead or there's a lot of different explanations for, um, for hauntings in the West. But in Japan, all yurei are based around this concept of desire, of wanting something. That is the fuel that makes a yurei and they all want something. Absolutely. Are they all vengeful spirits too? No, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, a lot of like yurei stories, um, are really like, like one of my favorite ones. Because it shows all of the different characters of Yurei, right? There was a, a rich noble woman who was awoken from her sleep one night by one of her servants rattling at her window. And when she opened the window, the servant girl just said, thank you, mistress, and then disappeared. And she found out that the servant girl had died that day. And obviously, the girl's last thought when she died was, I forgot to thank my mistress. And so her ghost appeared, thanked her mistress, and with her, with her desire done, with her obligation met she disappeared one of the most famous stories is that because and that's something else i go into the book is the concept of whatever your desire is so you become that kind of ghost like there's a difference between ghosts of hate ghosts of love um one of the most famous stories in japan like one of the most famous ghost stories is a story called the chrysanthemum vow and it's the tale of two um two best friends or uh, lovers depending on which translation you read and they um they were together, and one of them was a samurai, and he had to go on a duty to his lord, but he promised the other guy that they would come back together and they would meet on the eve of the Chrysanthemum Festival. And through a series of happenstance, the one that was on the adventure got thrown up in jail, and he realized in his jail cell that he would not be able to meet his obligation. He would not be, you know, he, he would not be there to meet the man that he had made his promise to. Um, and so he killed himself in his prison cell in order to free his yurei so that his yurei could meet with the friend. And that way he wasn't um, betraying the promise he made to his friend. And in the story, you know, the ghost appears, keeps the, keeps the appointed time and then disappears. So they're absolutely not all vengeance ghosts. But that said, um, there is nothing more terrifying and I don't even want to say in Japanese folklore, there's nothing more terrifying in Japan than a yurei of vengeance, what they call an onyo. They're so terrifying, they actually get their own special name. Um, and they are the single most terrifying thing. Uh, one of the, the Jap- like actually one of them, quite a few Japanese scholars have said that the pacification of these vengeful spirits is one of the through strains of japanese history something that is deep in the core of the culture and has not changed for as long as they've written known about history even up to the modern day that has been a deep part of the culture wow so how closely related would you say yurei are to yokai well now see this is where you'll get into a debate so yokai as a term is incredibly difficult to define or incredibly easy to define depending how on how you want to put it like if you get 10 folklorists in a room, you're going to get 10 different definitions of yokai. To me, yurei are yokai because I use the word yokai in the academic and traditional sense to mean strange and mysterious phenomenon. So traditionally, the word yokai never referred to monsters of any kind. It was just meant something like weird. It meant something that was unexplainable. In its entirety, that is all yokai was, something that could not be explained 
by rational terms. And so by that measure, anything weird is a yokai, right? Like the first use of the word yokai is because at one point in time, um, it said that lightning struck inside the emperor's palace. And so that is the first recorded use of the word yokai in Japanese to describe this weird weather. And you have all sorts of this kind of usage, right? You have strange waves, you have um, weird animals, you know, that are born different and they're described as yokai. And when you go into Mizuki Shigeru, who's a modern manga artist whose works I translate, and he's also um, a really exceptional folklorist, his yokai encyclopedias cover the entire world. So you'll have vampires, the Bermuda Triangle, Bigfoot, all of that is listed as yokai because the word yokai simply means the unexplained or the unexplainable. That being said, so that's kind of my take on it. Um, I know my good friend Matt Alt, who also writes books about yokai, he seems to – or he defines yokai from a more practical sense and in the more sort of pop culture sense, the way that it has come to be used. I mean the word used to have this grander meaning, but it's sort of changed over time to mean this um, this sort of group of Japanese monsters, the sort of pantheon of Japanese monsters. Um, and even that's a little weird because the vast majority of these monsters, I mean, they're not Japanese in origin. They originally come from either China or India. Very few of them are actually native to Japan, but they've been adopted by the Japanese culture so much so that they are called the yokai. So it's almost like there's you know, different versions of it, right? There's yokai, this group of monsters that you'll see in like yokai TV shows and yokai comics. And then there's the sort of like grander scale of yokai, which is just this world mystery. Interesting. So, uh, so that's where your, your belief is that it's just sort of the more of an umbrella term that encompasses the weird, yeah, you say unexplainable and, and, uh, and just bizarre creatures. Yep. And like, I, if I was pressed to put the word yokai in English, I would define it as mysterious phenomenon because that's usually how it's how it's used. Like, and I think that that's a lot of the inference of the pop culture, you know, because when you when you get into the comic books and like the movies and stuff, they want to define it really simply, right? I mean, it's kind of like I don't know. There's so many words that fit into that same category. For example, the word superhero. Uh, to some, you say this word superhero, and they're going to come at you with you know, the very basic DC Marvel comics idea of superhero. But if you expand your definition and allow it to be a little bit broader, then you get like the classical Greek Heracles in there, for example, mm -hmm. as a superhero. Or, um, you know, a lot of the religious tales, you know, St. Christopher could be considered to be a superhero. Or, you know, even going back to where who was the first first superhero, you know, does Sherlock Holmes qualify as a superhero? Does the Scarlet Pimpernel, you know, does... um Odysseus qualifies as a superhero. Or monster is another word to use an example, right? You can have monster as being something very specific, like the Universal Horror Monster movies, which I absolutely love. I love those monster movies. And to their monster means a very specific thing. But in the broader sense of the world, you can call someone a monster and you're like, oh, you know, this this doctor killed 50 of his patients. He was a monster, you know, but nobody actually thinks of him as an actual movie monster, you know? Right, right, or, yeah wow, that was a monstrous wave or it was monstrously hot. So there's words can be used so many different ways. Um, and I think my favorite thing really to just say and what I is just say that, you know, it's not science, it's folklore. And because of that, you're never going to find a single easy definition. So in this folklore, do you have any like particularly 
uh, fond tales that you you learned about or while you were in Japan or maybe that you've heard since then that you're very attached to? Is there is there any specific creatures that you love more than others? Oh yeah, I mean everyone has to have their preferences, right? Like, I mean I love kappa. I think kappa are just great. I think they're so bizarre because they are at the one hand completely cute and used as mascots for sushi restaurants <laughs> right yeah and, and at the same time if you actually look into that i mean they're horrible they are just the most <laughs> awful monsters i mean they literally you know like i don't know if you know too much the story of the of the kappa but they're um you know according to some stories they're born of the souls of aborted babies who were thrown into the river in order to um you know to sort of hide the evidence and they kill humans by reaching up their anus and yanking this you know this magic ball that supposedly lives <laughs> in your butt called a shiro shiro kodama rip it out of your butt and eat it i mean they're just they're just disgusting yeah but i think we mentioned also- that on an episode really recently <laughs> although i did not know about the aborted fetuses Oh yeah, there's so many legends of Kappa. I mean, like, and you know, there's, and you get into some of like the the Tono Monogatari legends where they're just atrocious. Like, you know, they're they're really they're really despicable. I mean, they're just awful. They <laughs> they um they were I don't know. I I hate I hate getting too much into some of the nastiness of it because I don't know who who gets offended by that some of stuff. But they were well known as rapists, and like the babies would then have be half Kappa and like would chew their way out of their mother's womb. And I mean, it's wow. just wow. Yeah, you can get into some really, really bad stories about Kappa. But then over time, they've transitioned to this entirely harmless, cutie little pumpkin pie that you think <laughs> it would be awesome to have over your house, right? I mean, it's just, it's such a strange transition. Yeah, I have some Kappa things that are kind of adorable in my house. <laughs> totally. I've yeah, got a whole shelf I'm, of them. I've I'm got sure, a whole Kappa yeah. collection. Yeah. And <laughs> it's not like they're the only monsters that have done that. I mean, Oni are another ones that have these really horrific origins. Um, but nowadays they're kind of cute and, you know, so yeah, I don't know. There's, yeah, there's lots and lots of monsters like that. And I definitely do have favorites. My favorite, my favorite Yure story is always going to be Botan Doro, which, um, I think a lot of people that, that watch movies have seen versions of it, but it's, um, it's one of the ultimate ghost of love stories about this man who, um, who falls in love with a ghost and it can either be played for horror or for romance. And I kind of like the romantic story, you know, where they, she, I don't know. I could tell the whole story. It's a little bit long, but essentially you have an old man who's this lonely old samurai sitting on his porch one day and this beautiful young woman and her maid come by and, um, because it's a great story, they fall in love and she comes to his house every night and spends the night with him, but she always has to be gone by morning. And eventually he discovers that it's actually a ghost, that she's not alive, and this Buddhist priest comes and helps him put amulets all over his house to protect his soul. And she comes outside of his house and she she pleads with him. She's like, I love you. Please let me in. And finally he decides that love is more important than his own life. So he rips off one of the amulets and lets him in. And they find him the next day um, dead, wrapped up in her skeleton with this look of absolute bliss and happiness on his face. So. That's also one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, at least he died happy. He did, yeah. Yeah, it's you know, it's this ultimate love story of love being far more important than um than being alive alive and lonely, I guess. So I uh recently I actually is the uh the snow is it Yuki Ona? Yuki Ona, yeah. Is, would you consider that a yure or no? 
No, definitely not. Definitely She's not. Out, okay. Out so that's the thing is like yokai have very expansive de- definitions, but yurei is very specific, right? The difference between a yurei is that you're a ghost, right? You are a dead person's spirit, which the yukiona is absolutely not. Gotcha. Okay. I was going to say, uh, well, I guess I could relate this back to other, other yokai as well, but the, uh, the movie Tales from the Dark Side that came out when I was in high school. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'd never realized until very recently that the final tale in that anthology is, it's about gargoyles or uh-huh. this gargoyle that comes to life. But I had no idea that that was, uh, a direct sort of rip off of the, of the Yuki Ona story. Right. Uh, until yeah. recently. And now I'm just like, ah, that's the best thing ever. <laughs> totally. I didn't know that either. It was one of those things that I actually found out when I was researching the Yuki Onna because I remember that movie and it was like, I was doing some research. Someone's like, oh, they redid it in Tales of the Dark Side. I'm like, oh, wow. No way. <laughs> I have to go watch that again. And that's also a pretty typical, typical trope in Japanese folklore. You have this thing called the magical wife, mm-hmm. which you, um, you essentially have a magical wife and, the magical wife is way too good to be true, and you get to keep her so long as you don't break one really simple rule. And that simple rule can be anything. It can be like, don't look in this box. Don't ask me this question. You know, I don't know. Don't feed me after midnight. You know, whatever right, the ridiculous. Right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but it's exactly like that. Whatever the ridiculous arbitrary rule is, you get all of the happiness in the world so long as you don't break this one stupid rule and they always break it, you know, 100% of the time. And I figure that's why they get to be a story because if there's, you know, if there's some other guy that didn't break the rule, they just got to live happy ever after. So maybe there's a whole <laughs> bunch of people out there with their magical wives that were smart enough. All I know is that if I ever got married, well, I am married, but my wife ever came up to me and she's like, hey, honey, you know, I love you. We get to be forever forever together but just don't put my left and right shoe together and be like you know done lesson learned you know (laughs) whatever this completely arbitrary rule is i will make sure to um to not do it i like how in the beginning of the book you talk about uh how your landlord said don't ever open that door and then you (laughs) never open the door Never open the door. Yeah, my wife and I, you know, we we moved into this place. And, you know, for people who aren't listening, um, that's kind of the lead-off story in my book is we lived in a haunted apartment in Japan. And in Japan, you know, there's a lot of stigma to haunted places. So the rent is just ridiculously cheap and it was this freaky place. And right when we walked in, there was this door on the wall and it was this door to nowhere. Like it literally would have just gone. I don't know. It was just a door in a wall. It didn't open anything. You could walk behind it to the other side of the wall where there was nothing to it open into. Um, and the landlord's just like, hey, don't ever open that door. Just so you know. And I'm like, you know what? I've seen enough horror movies. I'm never opening it. <laughs> we hung a little sheet over it and just tried to pretend it wasn't there for the, all the time we lived there. Uh, so what other film adaptations of Japanese ghosts and goblins are you fond of? So my absolute favorite, bar none, is the film Ugetsu. Uh, and I just think it is by far the most beautiful ghost story I've ever filmed. Have you ever seen it? It's an old uh, Mizuguchi Kenji film from the 60s. I have not. Uh, uh, it, is, it is really amazing. It is uh, this lovely, lovely film that um, combines a couple of different stories together into this single story that just encaptures everything I really love about Japanese ghosts. It's not a horror film by any stretch of the imagination. It's extraordinarily elegant 
really, really prettily filmed, and it's just it's amazing. It's my favorite. Um, I really like the film Kaidan, but that's because I like that genre a lot. You know, horror films like I I watch quite a bit of Japanese horror films, but they're mostly disposable fun. You know, they're like American slasher films. They're just popcorn. You know, yeah. You throw them on, you watch them. They're fun, but they're not really all that all that amazing. I do love um, I love like the Great Yokai War, which I think is a great film. Like the most recent 2005 version, I really love that film. Um, but I really think it's a different experience for me to watch it than for most people to watch it because I translate. I, the film is essentially a love letter to this guy Mizuki Shigeru, who I am his translator. And so for me, I I mean, this really in-depth knowledge of what is going on in the film. I think that I just watch it from a different aspect than other people. Actually, would you do me a favor and tell the listeners? Uh, I'm sure some of them have never heard of uh, of Mizuki. Sure. So Mizuki, uh, he does this comic book called Gege no Kitaro um, in English. We just keep it as Kitaro because it's easier for people to pronounce um, without having to explain the rest of it. But he, he's really, I mean, he's really the man in Japan when it comes to yokai. I, I, it's hard to really make an analogy to who he is. Like a lot of people want to say, you know, very easily, he's like, oh, he's Japan's Walt Disney. I was like, but no, he's not really. He's like, oh, he's Japan's Charles Adams. He's like, no, he's not really that either. He's his own unique entity. He's basically, um, I don't know. So how do I, how do I describe this without going too deeply into the history? So he created this, this comic Kitaro because he grew up on all of these yokai stories as a young kid. Um, his old nurse, a lady named Nononba, used to tell him all of these tales. And so he remembered them all and loved it. And he created this comic book that caused what's known as the yokai boom in Japan when Kitaro happened in the 1960s. There's been three yokai booms in Japanese history, uh, one in the Edo period, one in the 60s, and then one later in the 90s. And some people actually would say that they're in the middle of a, another yokai boom now with the yokai watch phenomenon. But we'll we'll see how that plays out. Right. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, hopefully. So, but with this comic Kitaro, like Japan kind of like fell in love with yokai all over again. I mean, they had pretty much disappeared from Japanese storytelling for most of the 50s, 40s, and, you know, all up into the wartime, essentially. There just hadn't been a lot of that supernatural anymore. And Mizuki was, is really the one that's responsible for all of that nowadays. Like, you would never have spirited away or my neighbor totoro if you had never had mizuki right he's really the godfather of all of that right right and he's the guy that i associate with uh with yokai knowledge or at least the folklore storytelling oh yeah absolutely i mean he's like one of the things that he did in the late 90s or i guess it'll be early 90s when he had achieved this sort of like level of greatness he decided that um he really needed to do something more important than um, writing comic books. And so he went on what he called his great yokai tour, where he really dove deep into the folklore of all of this. And he wrote this incredible set of yokai encyclopedias. It's this 12-volume set. You know, He's also very scholarly, as well as being you know, as doing these awesome little kids' comics. Right. Now, he was on like a, a panel of yokai experts that was tapped to help work on this, uh, on the great yokai war. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, 
having a panel of yokai experts and not having him there would just be, you know, it would be hard to take it seriously, right? I mean, oh, yeah. Really, <laughs> I mean, not to appeared, mention, like, probably a slap in the face, but yeah, yeah. you'd have to have him he, on there. He appears, I mean, not to, not to spoiler it, but he's in the film. I mean, the whole film is, is essentially his world manifested. And that's actually who yokai have come to be. You know, it's a lot in the way that people say that, that Disney transformed all of these European folk tales so that if you ask people nowadays to say, Hey, why don't you tell me the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves? Or why don't you tell me the story of Cinderella? They're much more likely to tell you the Disney version than the Charles Perrault version or any of the, um, the early European folk tales because the Disney version for, for good or ill, depending on who you talk to, has completely supplanted the ancient version. And it's the same way with Mizuki. You know, if you ask people to draw, a yokai, you know, like, hey, draw me a nudikabe. I don't know, 99 times out of 100, they're going to draw Mizuki's nudikabe because he has just completely supplanted it. Oh, yeah. So which one is that? Uh, that's the moving wall. Oh, okay, gotcha. Right. Yeah, I would imagine especially that one has been yeah. supplanted by uh, by Mizuki's work. Uh, so uh, he was involved with the movie, and it was Takashi Miike's first dive into this stuff right i think he hasn't done anything else since right yeah i don't know it's hard to say his dive i mean mike is such a bizarre director right because he, he's he's a lot like um well i don't know i wouldn't want to say he's a lot like kubrick but he's a lot like kubrick in the fact that he doesn't do a genre you know that's he true yeah yeah a ton of films like he works in every genre you know like kubrick did a horror film kubrick did a sci-fi film kubrick will do you know a historical drama or something and mike is the same way Sure, sure. I could totally see that. Yeah, because uh, I'm familiar with him from like Ichi the Killer and totally. Zebra Man and, of course, the Great Yokai War, which all three are very different. And then he did oh, yeah. a whole bunch of other films, too. Uh, I love the Great Yokai War. And I remember when it was coming out, I was, uh, I was psyched because I love the 60s films from Dae. <laughs> but this one was, um, it was after I had seen zebra man and so i was really excited because i knew that takashi miike had this like really great sense of humor and a really great like sense of style like visual style that Mm -hmm. uh i i think that nobody at the time was really doing anything like that and uh and then when i saw it i was a little surprised because i thought that the story was kind of I I mean it was a weird story from the actual perspective of an American watching it mm-hmm. without the yokai stuff and the yokai stuff on top of it was already weird right so yeah. like but because I I love that stuff anyway I was just really shocked at the <laughs> when the yokai stuff uh took a weird turn into like that uh the vengeful angry spirit that created the giant machines that created other yokai turned totally, yokai. Right? yeah it's just so yeah. so weird um i am curious like did you have any takeaways from that film that that you might be able to like enhance our viewing of the movie later this month i mean well it dives deep into and especially mizuki's concept of nature and war i mean one of mizuki's constant themes that throws through his his work is the horror of war because not only is mizuki a, a cartoonist but also i mean he's currently 93 years old and he actually he was drafted and fought in world war ii where he, um, he lost his arm fighting on the island of rabul in a an allied plane attack um 
And over in Rabul, he also just fell in love with this concept of like the pure nature. And Mizuki believes this very much. I mean, he, he very deeply believes that yokai are real. Um, he, he had his life saved by yokai during the war. This is a story that he tells, but so threaded throughout the great yokai war is just, I think that you can really see a lot of Mizuki's, you know, the, the sort of like pain that he goes through with the concept of, of this beautiful nature being transformed into these, you know, these weapons of war and the, the sort of destruction of industry that happens and how that happened to, to Japan, the country itself during the time where you had this fairly idyllic nation that was, you know, separated from most of the rest of the world. Uh, and then you had their sudden influx with the West, and then Japan transformed into this military industrial complex where everything, like Mizuki himself felt, he was just basically parts to be fed into the machinery of war. Um, and so, you know, all of that is deeply involved inside of the film. And I think that, I don't think that that message gets across that well without knowing the, the history. I might be wrong. I mean, maybe, maybe people do get that, but. No, I definitely think that that would have slid past me, man, <laughs> like, <laughs> without a doubt. Uh, that's good to know, though. Um, so you you dig that film. Are you a fan of the yeah. older ones, too, the ones from the 60s? Oh, yeah. I mean, those are like, yeah, I love Great Well. I mean, I got them all on DVD. You know, the ones from the 60s are just, they're just awesome fun, right? I mean, they're just so, they're, you know, they're just old tokusatsu, you know, just crazy, bizarre films. And yeah, ton, tons of fun. Yeah. Yeah, my uh my I kaiju friend of mine named Clay uh-huh. uh hooked me up with those back in the day and he was like, "Yeah, if you're if you're interested in them, hopefully you'll like them." And they were they weren't subtitled, so I just had to <laughs> yeah. sit there and like try and figure out what was going on and and, uh-huh. and then later when ADV Films put out the DVDs with subtitles, I was like jumping for joy because yeah. it was I was already so hooked on the visual of like what was happening in the movies that I needed to see them again. And then, uh-huh. of course, knowing what they were saying was a huge, huge benefit. <laughs> um, but yeah, I absolutely adore uh, those 60s films. Um, do you have any uh, any thoughts on why uh, yokai could be considered kaiju or kaiju could be considered yokai? Totally. And this is... Um, so we're going to get again deep here and uh, you know i'm sure there's many many people that will disagree so i tend to follow the mizuki shigeru theme of this where he considers yokai to be a broad category and then um in that category he's got like four subcategories he's got yure as one of the subcategories he's got cho shizen which um stands for sort of like super nature you know things that are of nature but are are somehow super uh, he's got henge which he calls the transformers and then the fourth category is kaiju which are the monsters uh although he uses kaiju differently i think than most people do like in um, the west when we started talking about kaiju ega or kaiju films we generally are talking about the dai kaiju right we're talking about the big monsters true true Um, and it just gets shortened down to kaiju to where most that most westerners tend to think that the word kaiju means giant monsters but it it doesn't really you know it's just the sort of short form of the term it actually means monster so however that said the daikaiju you know the godzillas the rodans from all of those they definitely do not come from the japanese tradition i mean those are a hundred percent clear line western influence from king kong you know there is nothing 
like that. There were no giant monsters really prior to that. And a lot of people want there to be. They want it to be this sort of like historical thread where you can you can start here in, you know, in the prehistory and the yokai and all of this stuff and wind up with Godzilla. And it doesn't really work that way. Godzilla is a clear reaction to King Kong. Sure. In yeah. Every way. You know? Of course. I yes. mean yeah, Japan adopted it and went for it. And they love, you know, they love their kaiju films more than any other country because they just love monsters, right? They're a monster culture and they, they go whole hog into monsters, but definitely comes from the, from the Americas. And then you get into like the original Godzilla film. I think I would, I would sort of isolate the original Godzilla film as being something a little bit different from the rest of the kaiju films that came after that. Because I think that the original Godzilla film, as well as being influenced by King Kong, is clearly a reaction to the nuclear bomb. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just is. You know, I remember being like you were talking about when you first got the film with subtitles. I was so surprised the first time I saw the unedited Godzilla, the actual Japanese version, because I always grew up on Raymond Burr. Sure, sure, of course, you know? yeah. And it's like, wow, I've been watching like an entirely different movie. They edited out all the anti-U.S. propaganda. Yeah, absolutely. And uh I'm I mean that was the only one that they really edited out anything but that was also the only film that really had like such a strong message too. Oh yeah. Yeah, so uh I guess I was uh, I was wondering like when you were in Japan were you able to do any any research on yokai while you lived in Japan? Oh yeah, I mean I mean that's where I did I did a lot of it. And th- although a lot of that was also language adaptation. You know, I just like when I got over there, like especially like Mizuki's comics, like it's it's kind of a funny connection here. Um and I actually I wrote about this in one of one of my introductions to some of his work that I did for Drawn and Quarterly. But the first time that I ever encountered Mizuki was really because of Godzilla. Um that there was this great toy shop called Kitty Land which you'll have to forgive the silly name, but it was actually a great toy store um, underneath one of these train stations. And I'd heard from one of my friends that that was a great place to go get um, to go get Godzilla toys and to get like Studio Ghibli stuff from Miyazaki. So I went there and they did have great stuff, but then there was also this whole display of Mizuki stuff, you know, and it was just, I was super interested in it, but none of it existed in English whatsoever. And I knew that, if I really wanted to dive into this, I was going to have to acquire the language ability. There's a lot more of it now um, in English. A lot more has been translated, but there certainly wasn't at the time. So, so yeah, that was you know some of my impulse and just really deep diving into Japanese. And once you can speak and read Japanese, then it opens up just a world of information because the Japanese have been doing yokai research for centuries, and they have written libraries worth of books on it, but it's all in Japanese. Yeah, I've I've actually noticed. Um, and somewhat really recently, we've seemed to be getting more and more English books written oh, on yeah. yokai. Whereas, and I'm not trying to sound like a hipster, but the, when I first started looking into this stuff, there were, I have like the two books that were on Amazon at the time. Uh, and now there's a, there's a relative stack of things. There is. Yeah. There's, um, you know, I mean, that's like the New York Times, uh, wrote an article about that. And I was, um, I was one of the people they interviewed for the article, but they were talking about that there's been a real, almost like, like, like America's having its first yokai boom, you know, like America suddenly noticed that all of this stuff exists. And there's been a huge upswing in interest. And along with that huge upswing in interest comes people writing their books about it. 
um, you know, there's there's me with both like my blog and my Uday book and translating Kitado. And then, you know, obviously there's Matt Out who does his work, which is really incredible. There's uh, Michael Foster who does these awesome books, but they're fairly academic. And so they're not as easy for people to get into, but they're really, and I, you know, that's almost the progression, right? You could like get into Matt's stuff because he's a great doorway. Um, and then move up to, to Michael's stuff with me being sort of what I consider to be in the middle ground between the two. And then you have like Matt Meyer who did this incredible Kickstarter that stunned everyone by earning, you know, $20,000 to create his own yokai encyclopedia. And now he's got, Oh, that's yokai. awesome. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? 20,000 bucks. We were all like, Oh my God, I cannot believe it. You know, off of yokai. Yeah. It's, it's just great. And, you know, and like, the awareness is growing and more and more people are interested. And now if you want to learn about it, it's a whole different ballgame than when I first started. You know, there's resources galore. I mean, still not everything. We're still just drops of water in the ocean compared to what they have in Japan. But there's a lot more access by far. Now, I told you when uh, I met you at Rose City Comic Con that I had a copy of In Ghostly Japan by uh, – is it like La- yeah. Lafcada Yohern? Yeah. Yeah. And you were mentioning that he was not giving the given the full story of the of these tales, right? Well, it depends on what you mean by the full story, right? Because I mean, I love Hearn. I mean, I write I write about Hearn a lot because he's just one of my my heroes of history. I think he's such an interesting guy. Um, but he he was not in by any means was he attempting to do a faithful translation, right? In fact, he actually couldn't speak Japanese, not even a word of it, um, and his wife spoke very poor English. <laughs> so <laughs> between the two of them, they actually created this, what they called um, Hearn language, which was how they communicated with each other, which was this really simple pigeon of, um, you know, some English and some Japanese, and they would speak the Hearn language together. And Lefkardio Hearn loved old stories. You know, he's all, he, he was just a writer of old folk tales and ghost stories and things like that. So what he would do is he would ask his wife every night to tell him a tale of old Japan. And his wife would, um, you know, she had learned some stuff growing up as a kid or something. So she kind of would remember stuff and she would tell him these stories the way that she remembered them. And then Hearn would listen to her and write them down and if it was a story he liked, then the next day he'd say, like, tell me that one again. And he would, you know, do it. And then he would change the story until he thought that it was a better story. <laughs> which, you know, which is all he was trying to do. I mean, he always said that he was, you know, he was a writer. He wasn't, you know, he's not, he's not an academic, you know, yeah. he's not trying to, to preserve stuff. He was trying to write cool stories. So maybe instead of saying he wasn't getting the full story, I should have said <laughs> he was giving a different story. Well, I, you know, I mean... And this is the thing about folklore, is that at the heart of the matter, folklore should never exist, at least in my opinion, once again, others may vary, folklore should never exist under a glass dome to be studied, right? It's not something to be preserved. Folklore is something that constantly changes to meet the needs of the culture that it's currently in, and it, if it doesn't meet that need, if the story doesn't change, then the story dies and goes away because it's no longer an effective tool. Um, I really, I have this great translation adaptation of the Brothers Grimm stories, um, done by the author Philip Pullman, who did, uh, the, uh, His Dark Materials se- series, if you're familiar with that really great series of books. But in the introduction, he writes that anyone who tells or writes a folktale and doesn't change it just a little bit, 
has misunderstood the purpose <laughs> of a folktale. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, what would you like to say about some of your other works that you've, uh, that you've contributed to or, or are available right now for people to purchase? So, uh, I mean, obviously for me, my big deal right now is my book, Yuda. It's really my, my big la- life's labor up till now that I've been working on. And it's, you know, after many trials and publishing things, it's finally available and I'm very, very proud of it. So that's my big thing. It's I a beautiful do- book too, by the way, I gotta say. Thank you. Put a lot of effort into that. You know, I really wanted it to be a solid, you know, like a pretty book. That was very important to me. Um, I'm also currently working on, this really great comic book, this yokai comic book, um, which just shows how much yokai have come into the modern consciousness, that there's a modern American comic coming out through Image that is a yokai comic book, and it's called Wayward. And so I work on that with um, with Jim Zob and Steve Cunningham, Tamara Bonville and uh, Marshall Dillon, and we all do this really, really awesome yokai comic book every month. That is just awesome because I've always loved American comics. So the chance to work on an American comic has been a dream. Um, I'm also translating seven volumes of Kitaro, which is great. I'm super excited for that. And I'm doing more than just translating them. This is actually my own personal curated collection. I put together all the stories. I'm writing quite a few essays and interior stuff as well. So you're getting this really, really cool Kitaro package. Oh, that's very cool, man. Very cool. Yeah, it should be fun. And I have other stuff available, like my translation of the story Miminashi Hoichi, which if you've ever seen the film Kwaidan, I have that for sale as well. And yeah, random stuff. But my big things are really wayward Kitaro and and my book Yurei. Those are my, my main ones. Cool. Well, we mentioned it earlier. Uh, you have a website yakumonogatari.com. That's where I actually initially came across your work. And, and, uh, I was like, how long has this been a thing? (laughs) You know, it's really, really a wonderful, wonderful blog. And I always feel a little bit bad about that because as I've gotten more successful, I write on the blog less and less, right? It used to be no one wanted to pay me to do this stuff. And so I just put it on, but now I've gotten a little bit more well-known and I get hired for jobs, which means that the blog gets neglect. But I've been doing my best. Um, there's this Twitter hashtag called uh, Folklore Thursday. And that's really been a nice driver to get me back into trying to get something up for the blog, at least on as often as I can. Nice. Very cool. Well, I, I really dig the blog. And uh, I mean, I love hearing about the stuff. I love reading about the stuff. I, I am curious, have you ever seen the movie Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidra, Giant Monsters, All at Attack? I don't think that there's a Godzilla movie that I haven't seen, to be honest. Okay, so the Godzilla movie where he's got like the white eyes and he's fighting against Baragon, Mothra, and King Ghidra. Yeah, I've got it on DVD. Okay, so that one, Godzilla is supposed to have been resurrected by the spirits of the dead from World War II. Uh Uh-huh. Any Yurei connection there for you? (laughs) (laughs) Not not really. I mean, it's so... it's, It's funny, so... One of the things, I mean, as you know, I, I'm sure everyone that listens to the podcast knows, but Godzilla, like like the Kappa, like a lot of monsters, went through this transitionary phase from something destructive into suddenly being a protector of Japan, right? Um, and it's, it's kind of weird that that happened, but it, it did happen in the films. So one of the things that is deep in the idea of Shinto is the concept that something that is destructive can be transformed to a guardian spirit. So... Uh, you have like this, I don't know, let's say you have one night 
a really bad uh, volcano. I don't know, just as an example, right? Sure, sure. So this volcano explodes and destroys your town. What can you do about it? Well, the best thing you can do about it is worship the volcano. So you build little shrines and through this really complicated series of rituals that's a big part of Shinto, you transform it from something that's angry into something that's a beneficial protector spirit. And so the spirits of World War II, the dead that died fighting World War II, have gone through this process to become this spiritual shield that surrounds Japan. And it's highly controversial because there's this shrine called Yasukuni Shrine um, that houses the spirits of the war dead. And obviously, a lot of countries that were under Japan's thumb don't really like knowing that Japan has essentially transformed all of their war dead into, a, into gods you know, to form this protective spiritual sphere that surrounds Japan. But that is what it is. So there's your Yurei correction with with <laughs> resurrecting Godzilla because you do have these um you know the World War 2 spirits are now considered to be the the protectors of Japan forever. Awesome. I like yep. that actually. That's yeah. <laughs> and, and you could even you could even bring that back in another film at some point to have totally. them yeah. make Godzilla protect people. All right man. Well, that was a great point to wrap up, I think. Uh do you have anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners? No, no. Other been it's just been super fun. I mean, obviously, I could blather about yokai for hours on end. So I always appreciate the chance to come on and come on and blather. You know, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm serious about if you want, if you and Matt want to come on and and debate, I'm all for it. <laughs> all right, I'll have to. We get we get into the debate on Facebook every now and then. You know, like someone just recently brought up the question, like something on a post on Facebook recently, and Matt's like. Oh, don't get us started again. Cause we totally <laughs> disagree with each other. Nice. And I think that that shows in the books that we write, right? Cause Matt has a much more pop culture focus and I have a different focus. Although he's kind of shifting focus recently with his new book, but. Oh you yeah. Know, I'm looking forward to seeing that for sure. Yeah. Cause he actually came to Yokai via Kaiju, which is an entirely different path than I took. So I can sort of see how he looks at it that way, right? He started with, with Godzilla and the, and the Daikaiju films and found Yokai that way. Yeah, that's where, that's where I am. But of yeah. course, I'm not actually, you know, studying them or, <laughs> or trying to write books. Or hey, anything. man, you're reading my book. That counts enough. <laughs> I guess so. I guess me, so. so. Now, do you have any, uh, any other film suggestions for people? I know you said Ugetsu earlier. Um, is yeah. that, is that something that people can find and watch online or anything? Yeah, it, I don't know if you can find it. I mean, hey, so I'm the wrong person to ask about finding and watching stuff online because sure. I do it professionally. So, yeah. you know, I prefer people to please purchase, but it's available through the Criterion Collection. Oh, okay. Right on. And that's yeah. actually what I meant. Like, can you find it Yeah, Ugetsu is part of the Criterion Collection. We, I do so. a lot of video on demand stuff. Ah, okay. <laughs> Sorry. And, okay, so uh, other than Ugetsu, or is, there, is there anything else you'd suggest I mean, for people to find? Or maybe if they want something newer so, or they want something scarier? If you want something scarier, like... You know, like, I really think that some of the, like, during the 60s, although those are really hard to find, so maybe it's not as good a recommendation. Um, during the 60s, they had a really great series of Kaidan films. Like, Yotsuya Kaidan is by far the classic horror tale. Um, and there was this director called Nakagawa that just, like, he just made the hell out of that film. He made an awesome, terrifying version of it that, that I really love. And I actually have a DVD of it and I watch it every year, but don't know that it's modernly available. Gotcha. Uh, gotcha. Yeah. Um, did a, another director, the same director that did, uh, Juon did a film called Kaidan, 
that is a really, really nice old classic Edo period um, Japanese folk story that, or ghost story that I really liked. Uh, some of the other ones, like Criterion also puts out House, which is just a badass, crazy, um, super fun film. They put out Kuroneko, which is, um, which is really funny because that shows translation stuff. They actually translated it as a ghost story, but in the original Japanese, it's a Bakeneko story. It's a cat story, not a ghost story, but they must have figured it was easier for people to come to grips with a ghost than a shape-changing cat. So Right, right. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah actually, I've seen that one. That's a good one. Yeah, that's a great film. We like that one. But definitely Ugetsu. Ugetsu is the way to go. Cool, man. I really, really appreciate you being on the show. It was a blast talking to you, and uh, I hope that my travels north to Seattle will eventually uh, cross paths again. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll be at uh, Emerald City Comic Con next year, too, if you you show up for that. So, thanks. ゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲゲ